0: Do you like my Metro golden mare there, John? It's gorgeous. That is to announce that we are back doing our live podcast gig, the Olympia, Saturday night, the 5th of March. So... If you booked for the last live gig that we, with impeccable timing, were going to host on the day, I think, yeah, the it day was, after it the lockdown was, was announced, right? Those tickets. Are I still had a valid. sense of relief. I have to say, <laughs> <laughs> those tickets are still valid. Okay, from the twenty twenty show, but there are more tickets on sale from tomorrow morning. However, if you are a Patreon, you have first dibs, pre-sale tickets from today. So, general public tickets. On sale from tomorrow morning, Patreons from now, and the gig is the Olympia, Saturday night, the 5th of March, the Dave McWilliams podcast, live.
1: Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science,
0: with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments.
1: economic indicators. Who knows where this is going to end
0: up. To understand the economy, you have to understand human nature.
1: This podcast is powered by Acast.
0: How you doing there? It is podcast time. John has his furry hat on. He's got his (laughs) Russian marching boots on. He looks like one of those soldiers outside the eternal flame at Red Square. He's all Russia today. How all are you, Ed?
1: I'm very good. Good. Um Dag 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 dag. Okay. Yeah, Did, Russia. Jesus. I mean, will they? Won't they? Why? Well, what would happen? Exactly. All stuff. Yeah. I mean, and and the like. The whole world has been on tender hooks for the past week, and I've been wondering, and I've been trying to kind of get, dig into this. Is this Putin throwing shapes with Lukashenko and all the rest and using Ukraine as bargaining chip? Yeah. Or is there something much deeper in in this? You know, the way he has this notion, this vision of the new Russia, which is almost like the old Soviet Union. Well, I mean,
0: the first thing to say is that the trauma of the breakup of the Soviet Union was enormous, particularly for what I would describe as the Brezhnev generation. Mm. So what we don't realize, and I really found this when I first went to Russia. Of course, was, you were there when it was yeah, breaking I was, up. I, yeah, I'll tell you about being there when I was breaking up. But I was also there about six years beforehand, the first time I went, which was the beginning of the Gorbachev age and the end of the Brezhnev age. And many, many Russians, we might find this hard to appreciate, regarded the Brezhnev age as an amazing period of life. Really? Yeah, because they got everything free. The
1: society worked. Nobody really had to work. Yeah.
0: Uh, You had the basics, all that sort of stuff. And there was a real sense. This
1: is also the height of the Cold War. Uh, This is
0: the height of the Cold War. Uh, Russia had huge power. It had satellite countries. Remind me,
1: what were the Brezhnev years? So the Brezhnev years from the late
0: 60s through the 70s through the 80s,
1: right? Right, yeah, yeah.
0: And so during those Brezhnev years, many, many Russians achieved a standard of living that their parents could never have dreamed of. It was a basic communist standard of living, but it was actually a standard of living. Were they urbanized,
1: or was it rural? Urban, is it-
0: urban Russians and rural Russians, but right, particularly okay. urban Russians. They also, don't forget, were a world, world power. I mean, they were the second superpower. Yeah. They had, this is before the emergence of China as well, in terms of China's position in the world. The Russians had satellite countries all over Africa, Russian universities were full of African students, for example. Really? Cuba, they had their friends in Vietnam. They had a huge, huge footprint all, all over the world. And they felt, those I spoke to, that this was how socialism should work. Then, of course, they make probably the fatal error of judgment in Afghanistan. They go into Afghanistan in 1979. Yeah. They get bogged down in Afghanistan the
1: economy it's like absolutely everybody who yeah. invaded afghanistan. afghanistan yeah
0: the economy probably was about to implode in the early 80s but they were saved amazingly by the various oil shocks of the late 70s so the iranian revolution so if you think the iranian revolution puts the price of oil through the roof yeah the price of oil through the roof gives the russian government a blank check And they're able to sustain the economy for about another 10 years off the back of high oil and gas revenue. Mm. And during those 10 years, yeah, there was all sorts of refuseniks and people being sent to gulags, but not in the way in which it was the case in the 50s and 60s. So there was a normality. So when I got to Russia in the 80s, there was a real sense that, you know, the situation was not that grim. And I think for those Russians, then those Brezhnev Russians, the generation whose parents fought the Second World War, the generation whose parents won the Second World War, the generation whose parents could actually say to the world, we defeated Hitler, not you, their kids gradually became a generation of Russians. And I'm not talking Russians, I'm talking all Soviet citizens who were quite happy with what was going on. That's the interesting thing. And when they look back on it now, there is an enormous nostalgia, because what came after it was the total rupture of everything they knew. Yeah. And what came after it?
1: But you know that most nostalgia is always through kind of rose. Oh yeah, backs. yeah,
0: no, absolutely. So absolutely. I'm sure there's
1: a lot of that going on.
0: Yeah, but I mean, chaos is an awful alternative, right? Even if the stability is stultifying stability, at least you get up in the morning, you kind of know what's going to go on. Yeah. The Russia I ended up in 1991 was chaotic. And I was there during the coup against Gorbachev. Yes. The coup against Gorbachev was the old communists having one last stab to centralize power because Gorbachev was decentralizing everything. And a guy called Shevardnadze, who was his Georgian foreign minister. And of course, what happened was there was a coup against Gorbachev. He was emasculated politically, although he was reinstated. But his power evaporated. And during the period I was there, which was the autumn and winter of 1991, was the process whereby the country was falling apart. Now, I was in a little village. But the amazing thing is, because there was a blackout at news, right? Or you didn't know who to trust. We began to understand in the village that something was really going wrong in Moscow when food started to run out. Right. That is terrifying. So the supply chains that were very intricate in the old communist system began to break down. And people started to starve. People started to starve. And I was amazed by this because I couldn't kind of get my head around that, you know, this country is imploding. Now, what you found was the ruble was imploding Mm. in the black market.
1: Mm.
0: The food was very, very hard to get by. And I remember, you know, the Russians, they been invited to a Russian house and they were making a huge deal of this, right? We were going to have dinner and this was the first time we had dinner, you know, properly. And they invited me to a tiny, tiny, tiny little apartments but for the fact three or four days beforehand they were talking about dinner, what they were going to get and then the food and la 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 la. And I was really also quite hungry at the time, right? (laughs) Because we couldn't get anything. And I remember going to this apartment and the, the, the apartment blocks in Russia were built in the 50s and 60s. And the apartments were tiny yeah. and usually maybe one or two generations of a family would live there. But they were unbelievably house proud as well. And so we sat down and they were, everyone was in anticipation of this delicious uh, meal that was about to be
1: served. Oh God.
0: Yeah. And so out came potatoes, which were great at the time because we were all hungry. But the delicacy was a thing called krill. And krill is... It's the stuff that whales eat. It's the scrapings of the inside of of a whale's tooth right okay it's the plaque right. of a whale okay <laughs> and i don't even like dover soul okay <laughs> so i'm sitting there and i'm the westerner and they're offering this to me and i'm about to as they say in the north poke. Right? Like just, oh, 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 how How is it cooked?
1: Is it, it cooked or is it...
0: It was kind of mushy and it was, it was like... Oh, oh, Jesus fly. Christ. And I'm sitting there. Don't tell me. I'm don't sitting me. there and I'm t- trying to keep, a, keep you know, I say, like, oh, this is delicious and it's wonderful. But what it shows you... <laughs> Have you got more ketchup there, Yeah, please? yeah, yeah. None <laughs> of that. Story, but what it shows you is that what, what what happens in a society that breaks down, and this is why, you know, economics, politics is... Profoundly dangerous when you embrace something really radical, right? Uh, which is why Konrad Adenauer, the German chancellor, used to say to his post Second World War cabinet in Bonn every morning, no experiments. Yeah. Right? Experimentation destroys people's lives. And when you're sitting in a country where everything is in chaos and all the assets are being grabbed by oligarchs and there's mafioses and the transport system breaks down, the food supply chain breaks down yeah you know it's a chasm
1: it's yeah, really that, that armageddon stuff
0: and i mean that's really what was happening in russia 30 years ago and it was an amazing thing to, to witness but i don't think anybody who went through that russians will ever forget the trauma of that and like russians have this trauma so if you think that was 1990 yeah well you know 40 45 years prior to that they had been invaded by the nazis yeah total yeah. trauma right and millions of people killed they were then run by stalin you know again totally traumatic period so the brezhnev period was peace it was like stability yeah
1: yeah, yeah. it's like
0: jesus thanks be to god yeah yeah, yeah and you,
1: you knew your enemy you knew your and, enemy and that's okay. yeah, we'll have to
0: figure out a way <laughs> yeah, of, yeah. of doing this but you know this is not case and then they go into the chaos of gorbachev and then the chaos of yeltsin and then comes putin and putin's back to stability
1: yeah at so- all costs so Putin has has brought stability, albeit a kind of a corrupt stability.
0: Yeah, an oligarch. It's a sort of an autocratic stability.
1: Yeah, right. But they follow him and they support him because of the, of stability. the stability.
0: Yeah, it's like I remember like Woodrow Wilson, the great American internationalist politician. Yeah, right, who was actually from Northern Ireland. His big thing was to make the world free for democracy. Yeah, right, that was yeah, the big yeah. thing. Putin just wants to make the world free for autocracy. <laughs> it's the same sort of thing. But his idea is strong leader, strong systems, stability. But, okay. And but- at the same time,
1: trousering huge amounts yeah, of money. Yeah, right? yeah, Okay, but let me ask you this and, and,
0: and the And the Soviet, so to go back to the Soviet Union, and they rebuild the Soviet Union, not as an internationalist communist state, but as a series of states around Russia where autocrats are in charge, and he, Putin, can deal with them Mano a mano, yeah, you know, yeah, and yeah, that's, yeah, that's what he's trying to do,
1: yeah, and, and as we've seen with Lukashenko in Belarus, yeah. and your man in Kazakhstan and stuff, yeah. but let me ask you this though, so the average Russian would support putin they, they say he's got very high popularity rate, well, allegedly he does no, I and think... i've I've read a few reports where you know they love him, but they hate their local government type of thing because Putin is putting so much pressure on the local government. All he, that he also
0: of- He's also modelled himself on the Romanovs, like he's brought back religion. This is the really interesting yes. thing. Yes, yeah, yeah. The same way as, you know, Xi Jinping in China has brought back Confucianism. Yeah. So they're kind of trying to get this cultural nostalgia with stability, with a Romanov dynasty, around it. all this sort of strange stuff. So what you're seeing is, again, that like Putin is an atheist communist by birth and by... Upbringing. Yeah. He now has no problem sitting down with the patriarch of the Russian Orthodox Church, no problem giving the church free reign. Yeah. You know, because they're going back to this traditional Russian
1: values. But, But my question to you now is while they support Putin in general because of stability and blah, 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 do they support his stance with Ukraine and building up troops and with the possibility? of going to war, which would bring them back to this chaotic time.
0: Well, I've, I'll tell you, I have no idea because I'm not on the ground there, but I know a man who is on the ground. Ah. Jerry McCarthy, a legend in Irish, Hiberno-Russian circles. Okay. <laughs> uh, an overall great egg has been in Russia since, since I was there in the late 80s, early 90s. But Jerry stuck around and he stayed there. He's been of enormous, enormous help to various Irish businesses. Yeah. People going over. He really knows the lie of the land. He's in Moscow. He's on the line. Let's go to Moscow. One of the most fascinating events in the Irish cultural calendar is an event that takes place in Russia, in Moscow. It is the Irish Film Festival in Russia. And it's been going on now for 10 years. Irish Week has been going on for 10 years in Russia. And the Irish Film Festival is going on for 15 years in Russia. And the man behind it, the legend that is Jerry McCarthy, is on the line from Moscow Jerry, how are you?
2: I'm pretty good. Um, blushing slightly after that interruption.
0: Well, well, listen, I'm, I'm not going to give you the rest. I'm not going to give. We're going to talk about all the things you do in Russia, which is phenomenal. About two or three years ago, I went over to Irish Week in Russia, and uh, Jerry said, "Yeah, I've organised a little chat for you, David," and he failed to tell me the chat was going to be in the Moscow Stock Exchange, uh, in front of a number of hundreds of very enthusiastic Russians who were very, very keen to hear a sort of a Western perspective on the world, maybe even a Western perspective on Russia. Jerry kind of nonchalantly organized that, said, yeah, yeah, we'll just turn up and we'll do this. He also, and having tried to learn Russian, I can tell you how impressive it is to meet somebody whose Russian is pitch-perfect fluent. And when you see that and you hear it from somebody who didn't learn Russian in college or academically, but actually went to Russia and learned it by doing, by doing movies, the first ever Irish-Russian movie co-production directed by Jerry Misha when he was a young fella. Also, the fascinating geezer, right? Uh, and of course, has been working for the IDA over there, the Irish Embassy over there, all that sort of jazz. And the last time we saw each other there, Jerry, we were in that fancy restaurant, what was it, Cori- Cor- Cori- Cori- Gorinich, Gorinich, yeah, it was a phenomenal place, amazing restaurant, amazing yeah, it's
2: place. A, it's a lovely place. I mean, it's part of a kind of. There's some very, very progressive people putting together those kind of places that have a mix. I mean, the guy who actually put it together, he's he's originally he's a Buddhist, but he's a very commercially minded Buddhist. So a lot of the music and the design in there was sort of very much sort of Eastern philosophy influenced. seeing the food is obviously totally international European. And uh, we had we had enough of it that evening. So we had enough it of it, evening.
0: yeah, and it was a very late night. But anyways, all good. But, Jerry, let us come back. You're sitting now, you're in Moscow. What's the mood? And contrast that mood from what you're reading in the Western press about what is imminent and what is not.
2: Well, I think, I mean, the biggest difference is, and I think it was said yesterday by Zelensky, the president of Ukraine, was that an awful lot of the threats, uh, especially the threat of war, is being generated by the Western media. So talking to Russians around Moscow, I mean, there's confusion because again, a lot of the information they are they're getting about uh, impending war is coming from Western media. Locally, it doesn't seem to be something that take, people take seriously at all. I mean, yes, they admit there are these exercises going on, there's a lot of troops involved, but there are a lot of exercises and a lot of troops going on a lot around. Russia, and not just around Russia, in international territories, international waters. So locally, there's a massive amount of scepticism about it. Like nobody that I have come across says we want to invade Ukraine. And very few people think it's even of, you know, a distant possibility. Um, It's a very good way of testing the metal of NATO and to see what kind of unity is left both in, in NATO and in the international relationships and in the EU. And uh, it's, you know, in general, it's a good way of sort of, you know, uh, if you've got it flaunted, like, you know, there's all of that military technology around the place, there's the tanks, the soldiers, you know, you might as well let people know you have it rather than keeping it in a shed somewhere.
0: So is the sense, like, if you're <laughs> if you're sitting down in, in a bar, if you're in somebody's house and the, the topic comes up, first of all, is it the first topic that comes up? That's the most, suffer- no, oh, it's not.
2: No, it's absolutely not the first topic. It's not even the first topic that comes up on national news on the, you know, the national state-run television station, the national news is all about coronavirus and Omicron. Uh, the numbers here are massive. uh relates to anything else. I mean, like everywhere else, I mean, there was 100,000 cases in Russia yesterday. Um, and the peak does seem to be very close, and it's probably going to follow the same format that it has everywhere else, but that is number one topic because everyone's sick.
0: And just uh, as, aside, sick. As, as an aside, is Russia displaying a lot of vaccine hesitancy, anti-vaxxers? Yes. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's part of the... When the further east you go, the more anti-vaxxers you seem to get.
2: Yeah, and there was some. There was a, a statistic someone told me last time I was in Ireland that of the of the people who haven't got vaccinated back in Ireland, a very large majority of them are from Eastern Europe. Um, so it's a sort of a, a, a skepticism that goes back to a lot of the, again the the clickbait stuff, the Bill Gates uh, nanotechnology stuff, a general skepticism about Big Pharma. You know, a lot of paranoia about one's own health. And all the usual, you know, international conspiracy theories yeah. and everything else. So people just don't want an extra shot of something they don't understand what it is put into their bodies, which is strange because a lot of shots of other things are put into people's bodies here at large rates, that
0: whose provenance is yet unknown. But listen, exactly. listen. So so let's go back. So basically, it's COVID, it's 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 Corona, it's the latest variant, etc. But let's go to so when people are talking about Ukraine, what you're saying is. There is a sense of, look, this is a show of force. This is and maybe us playing a little game. But we're not really in the business of rolling through borders at this stage.
2: No, no, not at all. And I think, in, you know, in all the time I've been here, again, on the streets, you don't find this a thirst, given the fact that obviously what Russia went through in the last century, both domestically and internationally, you know, two world wars, that's still extremely fresh in the minds of people here. I mean, I was at a film award ceremony last night, so it's it's kind of like the award ceremony for for patriotic Russian films is what it boils down to. It doesn't call itself that. And there were lots and lots of films, obviously, about the Second World War, lots and lots of films about the Stalinist era. The film that actually won was the only positive film in it, which is called Golden Skates, which is a kind of a a sort of romantic, historical thing set in St. Petersburg. But the speeches that were being made, you know, there were references to war and peace. Please remember, we want peace, not war. Lots of people who have Ukrainian roots saying from the stage, "This is not where we want to go." And let's keep in mind at the moment that we need to keep level heads, not to be, you know, drowned out by the the, the media swades and the hysteria. And remember, at the end of the day, that we have all got more in common, especially you know in this part of the world, yeah. Belarus, Ukraine, and Russia. Even Lukashenko said that yesterday. Admittedly, that was a staged thing. We have far more in common than we do when uh, we have differences. Um, but I mean, that doesn't mean that the the situation isn't tense politically. But on the street, as say in Moscow, it's it's something that you know people are far more worried about whether their kids are going to be going to school on Monday
0: at the moment. Okay, Joe, Can I ask you then about the Russian? I think very legitimate fear or angst about NATO and NATO's expansion. Because if you think that, you know, this this Ukraine showdown came in early December where Russia basically tabled the motion which said, Ukrainians, you can never join NATO uh, because it will be just an encroachment too far. So explain that bit to me because, you know, the way in which NATO's borders have shifted over the years that we in the West don't really appreciate?
2: I was listening to a lot of the stuff on the radio about the Russian uh, naval exercises. On Irish radio? Yeah. Yeah. 200 and whatever, 40 kilometers off the Cork coast. And the hysteria and scandal and insult and affront about that. It's an exercise that is taking place not even in, in official Irish waters, as far as I know. That's... A, a tiny sort of insight into how people are thinking about basically 23 years of NATO expansion closer and closer and closer. So if you can imagine that train exercise next time round happens 50 kilometers off the core coast and it's actually infringing into Irish waters. How would we feel about it? And I mean, it's been said a million times. NATO in, in 1997 was a 1, thousand kilometers away from the Russian border. It's now 70 kilometers away. And it's 70 kilometers away, interestingly enough, from the city that President Putin was born in, Leningrad, which is now St. Petersburg. And when you look at the map, just visually when you look at the map, you see this swathe of countries that have joined NATO voluntarily uh, for different reasons. Of course, Russia's going to feel threatened, especially if you look at the, again, look at the map and you see where Ukraine is positioned. It sort of, it reaches in. It's like the liver of Russia on the map. And, and, and it's gone. And that is probably certainly something that nobody here wants, and it's been built up very, very strongly. It's been said openly by Lavrov, by Putin, by pretty much every Russian official.
0: It's just not acceptable. And then, so, not acceptable. We need to get clarity on this. There is a threat, not veiled. It's a pretty explicit threat, as putting our troops. But if we can have a deal, we back down. Is that your general sense? Yeah, I mean, I don't think uh,
2: most of the people I've spoken to here just about this, don't feel there's anything to back down from. I mean, they're saying, yeah, we're running military exercises. We do that all the time. So it's not as if they're saying, yes, we are preparing for war and we've, you know, we put our flag in the ground. They're saying, we're just doing what we always do. We always do this. And you're just getting a little bit hysterical about it at the moment. I mean, there's, you know, there's military exercises going on at the moment in Kaliningrad. I think there's some on the Polish border. Again, attention has been brought to them. Um, But I think the Russians and some of the the people closer to the political side that I've spoken to just feel like we don't feel that there's any embarrassment if we just say, guys, it's time to go home, because that's what we do every time we have an exercise. I mean, it's a little bit flippant, (laughs) but it's... But yeah,
0: it is a a fallback position if they fall back on that. They're like, this was no big deal. Yeah. And just before you go, what do you think... I mean, one of the big things I'm reading is that there's been a profound change in... Putin's sort of general attitude to Russia's place in the world as a result of him getting pretty much, not total, but reserved, but significant support from China. and Basically, he has China and China has his back at some stage. What do you think of that?
2: Well, I mean, I don't think that's, that might be a convenient perception for now. I don't think it's the case. I think there's a lot of concern, very deep concern about the borders with China and what's happening on those borders between China and Russia. And obviously, you know, with the potential, I mean, China is a big, powerful country. And I think a lot of the the deals that have been done, have been done almost, they've almost been forced upon Russia because of the deterioration of the relationship with the West. And I mean, it's one of the, I suppose it's, it's I could even call it one of the saddest things. I remember when I, you know, the beginning of even the 2000s, there was still probably in the middle, even up to probably 2010, there was still talk of a, a massive, big sort of Eurasian union that would stretch from Lisbon all the way up to Vladivostok that would combine everyone in a sort of a, a pseudo expansion, not expansion of the EU, but more of a kind of a leveling of the, the rules across all of those territories, which of course immediately disappeared in 2014. And that forced Russia very much, or Russia forced itself in that case, to obviously seek close relationships with China to, you know, to to retain some kind of leverage. There's no question about the fact that most Russians that I know definitely see themselves or want to see themselves again as a superpower and as a player and a very serious player on the world stage. And, you know, what's going on at the moment is, is a reflection of that.
0: But the Irish Film Festival goes on. <laughs> are you? Are you yeah, having a festival?
2: Yeah, we're having the festival. Where we're kicking off on the seventeenth of March, and you know, as you said, it's the fifteenth year. It's the it's the biggest festival, Irish film festival anywhere at the moment in the world, which is kind of a strange thing. It's hard. For it my is team. a
0: strange thing, but it's an amazing achievement, Cherry. It really is.
2: Well, it's it's something, and it's again something. Again, analyzing or listening to to some of, you know to some of the rhetoric over the the constant rhetoric, you know, I think there's a lot of similarities. If you look at just the people, if you set aside the politics, the people here are very similar to us in many, many ways. And I mean, you live here, you know yeah. that that's probably true. You know, the values are similar. The ways of socialising and enjoying yourselves are similar. And the Irish films we show, we show, we pick them, you know, appealing to that similarity again, to try and demonstrate who we are as deeply as possible, but also trying to make sure that that is as easy to understand and absorb for the audiences we have here. You know, and a lot of work goes into that. And we feel, as we always have done, you know, we've we've had the festival all the way through sanctions, all the way through, um, you know, Crimea, all over all of the years, because we feel it's really important to keep that human connection. And that's something I think that's even shared at government level, where you realize that the cultural activity is is what keeps the channels open, even when the diplomatic channels have gone. If there's that cultural connect, if people are listening to the same movies, sitting in a cinema, watching you Know the same stuff, then they'll find something that will prevent them from deciding to misunderstand
0: each other. Finally, well, listen, when you have us over, maybe we have a podcast. We could have the Dave McQueen's podcast in why not? Man, this this jar is it. getting this tour, uh, bigger yeah. and bigger <laughs> in that in that in the Moscow Stock Exchange building. We record the whole thing.
2: Well, that sounds like you've just invited yourself over. Always. (laughs) Well, you're always welcome. So, I mean, absolutely. Why not? Let's try and do it.
0: No, that will be great. Listen, Jerry, wonderful. Thank you so much. And we'll talk to you soon. And you, listen, thanks a million.
1: You, next podcast this world tour is going to be mega you are going to be a pe
0: which is a translator <laughs> 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 yeah no well actually Moscow I mean it's it's a mad mad wonderful dark I'd love to have gone city. it's huge
1: yeah yeah uh
0: you'd love it actually I'll tell you a story that happened in Moscow go funny, on funny one about 20 years ago, maybe 15 years ago I'm in Moscow uh doing some work and I end up at a nightclub.
1: Okay? Right.
0: And Russian nightclubs are full of very glamorous Russians. Does yeah,
1: right? it sound dodgy already?
0: No, it was a bar. Like, it was a bar nightclub, right? Right, bar, right, right, right. right. So I'm at the bar. The people are say, listen, Mac go get us a few drinks. So I go up to the bar. I'm standing at the bar and, and it's, the... About, it's like an Irish bar. So it's three thick at the bar. And yeah. everyone's shouting at the barman and blah, 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 blah. And there's an incredibly good looking Russian girl in front of me. And, you know, suddenly... And with a certain amount of pleasure, I feel a hand in my groin. My gosh. What? Crotch. what? Okay. Okay. I'm thinking, this is very strange. And it's this beautiful girl in front of me. Hand, her hand. behind right, And I'm thinking, wow, wow this is kind of. This is you know, not right. This is not right. <laughs> but we're not, we're far away. And, we're going for and she's absolutely gorgeous. And I'm thinking to myself, oh my God. And she's really going for it. And I'm thinking, yeah. Jesus, this is what everyone tells you is going to happen to you in Russia. blah, blah. blah. And I'm getting, I'm thinking to myself, oh my God, here we go. And she turns around, she clocks me, and then there's a really handsome bloke beside me, and it's her boyfriend. And she thought, I was he. <laughs> <laughs> and she goes, fucking used. And I'm looking at your man. He just—he—he he doesn't know what's going on. She's rummaging around, <laughs> fucking the Irish lad, who's at this stage going, how are you, love, all right? <laughs> I just had to laugh at her, and she's laughing at me. And I said "Yeah, stranger things have happened. I'll have, have to bring you to that gaff. I'll have to bring you there.
1: Fanta Pants I right, know, hold on, hold on,
0: hold on, hold on.
1: No, but, come here, okay, let's get serious. Yes, John, yes, let's, let's get serious. Let's get serious, let's get serious. Right, right, right. What Jerry was saying there kind of tallies with an awful lot of stuff that I've been reading and watching on the news, which is that, the Russians themselves, the average Russian doesn't want a war. Yeah. And then also, I saw something just the other night about the Ukrainians. They themselves, while it's kind of the main news there, they are not really prepared and they don't really want a war. Of course, they don't. And here's the thing it seems to me that America are kind of ratcheting this whole tension maybe. up. Maybe. Maybe. Yeah, maybe. But Who's going to win out of this? Because, you know, economically, Russia would be banjaxed. America would be banjacked, America haven't won a war since World War II, let's face it. You know. and,
0: and Europe is unbelievably dependent
1: on Russia for gas. Exactly. So it looks like there's no winners in this at all. Well, And I, there will be a disaster all around.
0: Well, it's a fascinating thing. It's a fascinating area, which is the, the rational approach to what happens in war. So economically, you would say, okay, look at the economics, look at the interlinks, look at the interconnectivity, look at the interdependencies between all. So globalization was a process whereby the whole world became highly interdependent. And the more interdependent we became, the less likely anybody had in terms of an advantage for having something like a war, right? Because it would actually bring the whole house of cards down on top of each other. And there's too much at stake. There's too much money and there's too much economic relationships at stake. Yeah, And you think, okay, that makes complete sense. Except there is a fantastic and kind of chilling warning from economic history. And it is on the eve of the First World War, right? So mm-hmm. if you think of the period between 1870 and 1914 was the first real period of, what we would recognize as globalization yeah so you have lots and lots of money largely coming out of Europe, which had a surplus mm. a financial surplus, funneled through London, which was the global center of finance, and then into all sorts of areas. so you had for example, European loans financing wheat in Canada, financing beef farming in Argentina,
1: right.
0: financing cotton in Russia, financing railroads. There was a railroad built from Berlin to Baghdad, all financed, right? It was <laughs> extraordinary things, Like
1: right? a really cool trip. For, like yeah, stupid. exactly,
0: financing all the huge excavation money that went into the mining in South Africa. So you have this amazing system of interdependence, globalization, and connectivity between everybody, right? Yeah, yeah. As we have today. Yeah. And the idea then was, why would you fight a war? Not only the idea, the book, uh, back to the old books, right? The <laughs> book that was a cult book, the biggest selling book in 1912 in the world, yeah. okay? non-fiction book in the world, two years before the First World War, was a book called The Great Illusion. And The Great Illusion referred to the illusion that somebody could win the war, right? That was The Great Illusion. Yeah. And it was written by a British journalist called Norman Angel, or Agnell, right? right? Okay, who wrote for the Daily Mail. And his idea was, we're so interconnected that it would be entirely ridiculous to contemplate a war. And so consequently, we're in an era of peace. Now, this book was such a cult that it actually created, first of all, i just tell you, it was sold a million copies in 1912. One million, so a huge amount of nonfiction books to sell, right? It's translated into 22 languages. Chinese, Japanese, Arabic, Persian, okay. There were 40 organizations worldwide set up to advance this idea. And Agnell was regarded as a total and utter visionary. Right. Lots and lots of people in lots and lots of very, very prestigious positions were articulating this. Even Kaiser William of Germany, the guy who many people (laughs) blame for the war. And I'll give you a great example, right. So Lloyd's was the biggest insurance company in the world. And Lloyd's Shipping, Shipping was the biggest insurance ticket in the world. Lloyd's Shipping insured every single, think about this, every single frigate in the German Navy. Oh, so we were in this bizarre situation where if the Brits went to war with the Germans and they sunk a German frigate, <laughs> British investors <laughs> would have had to pay Lloyds to pay the Germans. Oh, right? the Lloyds
1: go, oh, wow. no.
0: So think about this. So, so the whole world was completely integrated, yeah, right? Yeah. So everybody, almost to a man, suggested the First World War couldn't happen. Even the eve of the German mobilization, the stock markets were still open, right? They closed the next day for four years. They never opened again, right? Right. But the idea is to come back to your point, right? Agnell's book, The Great Illusion, was subscribed to and bought into by many, many millions of people. Those who read and those who listened to him. He's a pamphleteer as well and a journalist, right? And his idea was exactly like now: war would be so ridiculous that nobody well, would go to war.
1: Well, he, he he may have sold millions of copies, but and they may have read them, but they didn't adhere to it.
0: Well, this is the point. So he was right.
1: Yeah. On the he was right on the big idea.
0: He was right. You no know, number one. Nobody would win, because if we know what happened after the Second World War, even the winners lost. Mm. Like the French and the British, they yeah. won ostensibly, yeah. but they actually were to, banjoed, to use your expression, <laughs> right? Number one, the Germans not only lost, but didn't forget it for a couple of decades. Yeah. The idea of the interlinks didn't matter. The rational man, back to our idea, John, the rational man acting rationally would have said, we should never do this but humans are irrational. Humans are irrational. And because humans are irrational, countries are irrational. Yeah. And they do irrational things. So watch this space. Just before you go there, I just want to make a clarification on an error I think I made during the last podcast, the one about how we could make public transport free, how we could increase a tax and or a charge on cars going into cities at rush hour and generally how we could actually move to really a carbon neutral environment whereby we shift people from cars into public transport i was saying that we could use a bond which we could or we could roll over a one-year note which we could at very very low interest rates but i think i made a mistake actually i know i made a mistake on the actual cost i was saying it would only cost 6.6 million every single year but the problem is it's compound interest of course i for some bizarre reason, I was thinking simple interest. And once you compound that, the rate of payment, actual overall amount of interest you would pay over a 10-year period of a bond, for example, would be significantly greater. So if you compound six over 10, you probably end up paying about 300 odd, a bit more million in interest over 10 years. But that is not a huge amount in the context of what we're trying to achieve or in the context of Ireland's overall tax take. And certainly not much in terms of the tax take you could have if you raised the price of coming in and out of the city, this congestion charge. But just to get you right, we underestimated the cost of interest. So it'd be a lot more expensive than we originally suggested on Tuesday. However, it's still not expensive at all in the context of what we're trying to achieve. Just a quick message. Listen, thank you so much to all our Patreons. We couldn't do this without your support. And if you fancy supporting us, I'm getting all sorts of fantastic gear, economic courses, tutorials, reading lists, all that jazz. Follow us on Patreon. That's patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams.